Hello and welcome to Out and About Imolovians. I'm your host, Java May Barfa. As part of my job as Member of Australia's Parliament, I get to travel around Malovians, meeting interesting people and hearing about how the companies, charities and projects that they work for benefit and contribute to our community. On this podcast, I will share their stories. On today's episode, I'm looking forward to talking to Alison and Sam from Richmond Hope. Well, good afternoon, and we're doing it slightly different today for the first time ever. I've got double trouble, and so it's great to have Alison and Sam who are going to be talking to us this afternoon. And um, maybe start with you, Alison. Just um, Richmond Hope. I, I suspect a lot of people, even with the Malovians, don't know who you are, what you do. So just tell us a wee bit more. In a nutshell, Richmond's Hope is a child bereavement charity. So we're providing bereavement support to children and young people from four up to 18. So we cover the full age range, um, children and young people. We do it, we work one-to-one mostly with the young people. Um, and that's, we have a bereavement team in Edinburgh who work you know, with the, work with the children, they assess what they need. It's based a lot on play therapy. Um, and Sam will be able to tell us a bit more later on about the detail of what they actually do. Um, but in a nutshell, that's what we do, is we provide bereavement support to children. Um, and what we find is, I mean, the statistics are quite eye-opening um, when you think about it. As many as about up to about 92% of young people in the UK will have had a significant bereavement by the time they're 16. Um, and they kind of look at one in every primary school class, numbers-wise, will have had the loss of a parent or a sibling, you know, a significant bereavement. Um, so the numbers are high and the support is needed. And that is quite a kind of sobering thought, that one per primary school will have someone with that significant loss. I suppose we still live in a culture where we don't like to talk about death. Is that changing as you talk to people, as you interact? Are people more willing, whether children or adults, willing to talk about death? Or is it still a taboo subject? In society as a whole, I think it's probably still quite taboo. Like many things, steps have been made and you're getting there. You've got the introduction of death cafes and things like that. Sam, do you want to come in on that? Because you know more about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that we still struggle to talk about death and bereavement is still something that we find parents really struggle to talk to their children about because they don't have a blueprint on how to talk about death themselves. Um, a lot of families still say that people avoid them, they don't really know what to say, so they tend not to say anything. Um, but yeah, I think it's getting better, but there's definitely still a difficulty for people to talk about death, dying and bereavement because people are so uncomfortable with it. And only for for children, the younger children, they don't have that vocabulary, they perhaps not got that process worked out. So how do you help them deal with some of the issues that they're having to face? Well, younger children don't necessarily have a concrete understanding of what death means. So they can get quite confused by the, the, the nicer phrases that people use to talk about somebody having died, we lost somebody, or they passed away. They can find that really confusing because you lose your car keys and you go and find them. 
Um, so we try and encourage families to use concrete words like dead and died and explain what that means. So when somebody's heart stops beating and their, their body doesn't work anymore, they can't see, hear, feel anymore, and that's what dead means. And people don't wake up from that. They don't come back from that. So um, we do try and encourage younger children to explore the concreteness of death because they don't necessarily understand that when they're, when they're really small. And uh, presumably, again, there will be variations, but for most young people, is there a process that they go through? Is there something you can see them developing, understanding on? Or, you know, how long would it take? How long would you work with somebody normally who's going through that grieving process? So there's two different questions in there, I think. So we would offer 12 one-to-one support sessions with children and young people to be able to explore their grief, memories, feelings around um, their special person. But every child is completely different. So what you will see in one child will be to- totally different to another child. Um, so you can't ever say there is a uniformed stage. There are no stages of grief. You can hear people banding around the stages of grief quite a lot. And while they can be helpful in understanding that people do struggle to process when somebody's died, everyone is so unique. You cannot you cannot have a script as to how somebody will grieve. I suppose an interesting thought for me to see you say that is, what's a positive outcome then? For If you're dealing with a, a young person, a child, over that 12-week period... How I don't know if success is the right word to use, but how would you measure that's been something we wanted to achieve with that individual? So at assessment, we have significant indicators, so things that you've noticed in that child that they're really struggling with since their person has died. And it could be a child is really struggling to talk about their person. They don't want to talk about their person because they're worried about upsetting other family members or other people. So a success could be that that child feels safer and more comfortable in communicating their feelings to their family. Quite often, families do have communication breakdowns after a death purely because we all grieve so differently. What one person is seeing in another, they may feel you're not feeling it as deeply as I am or you're not experiencing it the same way I am. And communication can break down. So one thing that I would say would be a measure of success is definitely that a family are able to talk and communicate one with one another a little bit more around their person. So obviously, you know, you're talking about quite large numbers. Mm-hmm. How do people access your service? How, how do they find you? How do they get that kind of help that they might require? So we've got um, we've got our website, so people can find us via our website. Um, we take referrals from third parties, we take referrals from families themselves. Um, we ask that there's been at least three months since the death and that the children and young people are fully aware of the cause of death um, before we offer support to them because we work on the basis of honesty and truth. Um, but we can, we can take a referral from, from them at any point. So why three months? It's interesting. So someone, mm-hmm. say, mum dies? Mm-hmm. Why that delay? Because it gives children the opportunity to settle back into a new normal. It gives them that chance to get past the funeral. Gives them Things have settled down. They're potentially going back to school. Families are going back to work. They're settling into a new normal. A new normal that none of them want to be in, but a new normal nonetheless. And that's usually when you see whether the significant difficulties are happening or not. Everybody is going to feel upset or sad when there has been a death. 
but it gives them that period of time to adjust to what is what is their new life and then you can see whether there are going to be significant struggles whether somebody is stuck in their grief and whether they do need that extra support because what I would say is while many children can get by with um, with their grief with the support of their family with the support of their friends one in three will need that little bit of extra support and obviously um, you work with a, a range of individuals um, is money an issue? Do you have to pay for your service? How do you financially kind of operate as a charity? The, the organisation is funded like most charities in a variety of ways, you know, trusts, foundations. Um, for the first time this year, we've managed to get some Scottish government funding. Um, we usually get by on lottery um, children in need, you know, the, the, big, the big ones, along with a lot of smaller funders. We do fundraisers as well. We've just done sort of a major one to mark our 20th anniversary, where we had a mile of memories in Holyrood Park, which was, you know, a good visual display, and it got people along, and it got attention, because that's something you're always looking to do as well, is to raise awareness, make people know you're there, um, which brings the money in as well. You know, we try to work with maybe some local businesses, um, you know, as well, and they can offer support in kind, or, yes, we do need sort of money as well. Um, Edinburgh City Council and the Lothian Council, um, we also have some funding through them. Yeah, so that we're able to provide families yeah. that support free of charge. We would never charge yeah. a family for the support that they would receive. And the only time that we do that is if we are short of funding in a particular area, we would suggest that, for a donation we could be able to provide that support but the areas that we are fully funded families do not need to pay. Mm -hmm. So we're sitting here in uh, Cringwilla, uh, in the heart of Cringwilla, do, do you operate, obviously you mentioned Midlothian, so do you operate across the city or is it kind of a geographical area as you work? Um, we have specific bases um, that we go out to to be able to be a little bit more accessible to families um, further afield. So we've got a base in Dalkeith, we've got a base in Carrick now, Craig Miller, and we've just opened up the base in Methyl in Fife. So that's for Edinburgh and the Lothians. And obviously we've got Ibrox Parish Church where we support children through in Glasgow. So just going back to the whole process of of grieving. So if sadly someone's listened to this and mm -hmm. perhaps they've um, got a child who's lost a, a close relative, and I appreciate what you said, no, no child is the same, but are there general things a parent should or shouldn't do? Are there things to help the child start to process that whole thing in their life? Age-appropriate honesty um, about the cause of death um, and just being as open to talking about their person as the child is, is wanting is wanting. Um, what I would say most certainly is to give to give those to give the children that time to be able to talk about their person. Um, nine times out of ten, the family are grieving as well, so it's a very difficult thing to do. But to be able to understand that children will come back with the same question over and over again and consistency if they can be as consistent as possible with the message that they're giving to their child that can give them that sense of safety and security that they are getting the truth that they are getting honesty and that they can come to their person and talk whenever they need to and i suppose the other side of the coin is what happens if you don't get that support you know what are 
some of the issues you might face later on in your life if you haven't had the opportunity to talk about it and to explore it? I I can answer that one from experience of family members who way before, you know, something like this was in existence. Their dad died. They were four young kids. Um, They didn't, well, they all struggled to some extent. Obviously, their dad had died. You know, it was grief. But in later life, one in particular, I know if he'd had the support he needed because we saw his reaction to the death. We saw him all the way through it. Now in his 30s, He's gone off the rails. He's, you know, he's struggled really, really much. So it affects the entire lives. And they do say there is a large percentage of the prison population who have suffered a significant bereavement bereavement in their early life. Um, I don't know if you've got more on that, but um, I know that came up recently in something we were looking at. Yeah, I, I think it just gives... It gives young people that opportunity to address what's going on for them throughout their lives. If they are told quite early on to not talk about it, or if the message that gets through to them is we don't talk about these things, we keep it very much bottled up, that's the message they have throughout life. Then they don't tend to talk about issues, and we all know what happens with mental health if we don't talk about our mental health, the troubles that can come up for people. So COVID isn't a distant memory, but it isn't affecting us day in, day out. Um, I hear a lot of teachers, parents talking about, not necessarily death, but about just anxiety within young folk generally. Is that your experience, that anxiety plus maybe a traumatic experience has happened? And any positive lessons that came out of COVID, or was it all negative? Um... That's a toughie. Um, I, I don't think there's very much positive that came out of COVID. I think what we've definitely seen is that, yes, there's a lot of anxiety in young people that they probably would have had without their bereavement because of COVID. And then they've got the extra weight to carry with bereavement on top of that. Um, a lot of young people weren't able to go to their f- the funeral. They weren't able to say goodbye. So there's not only the bereavement, but there's also the added trauma of not being able to actually have the opportunity to be with their person before they died, not have the opportunity to say goodbye at a funeral. I think it's having a huge impact on people. And that, that might be adults and... Children. Adults and children, definitely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it sounds like, you know, to be honest, it's a pretty horrific job, what you do. I love my job. <laughs> Why? Because it sounds like, you know... Most people would be told, you know, you're going in to do another day of death. Probably mm. wouldn't choose this as a career. Probably not, but um, I, I do. I really enjoy. Um, I really enjoy my job. I really enjoy meeting with families. I really enjoy being able to give families the opportunity to have space to talk about their person. Very often, we find at assessments with families that it's the first time they've had the opportunity to talk about their person in a really long time, and you can you can really see. While it is very difficult for a lot of them, you can really see they're bringing their person into a conversation and they're remembering the to- they're remembering all the little things about them and, and they're bringing them back into their life just for that little period of time. And I think it's a genuine privilege to be a part of that for people. And as someone who is still fairly new to the organisation, and I was aware of Richmond's Hope for a long time, 
Um, I spend most of my time at our Glasgow base and I'm a member of that church so I've been aware of the organisation since they moved there a few years back. But seeing what the bereavement workers do, hearing some of the referrals that come in over the phones, listening to them talking, they do an absolutely phenomenal job. Um, I just always say I'm absolutely blown away by what they do day in, day out and the impact it has on children and families. I, I don't know who you both are, but does faith make a difference to a poor church? I don't follow a faith at all. Um, and what I would definitely say about Richmond so is while we do have bases within churches, we are for all religions and none. So there is no specific criteria for families to follow any religion to be able to access support. Um, we are incredibly lucky to have been given the support of the church in setting up the service and then being able to, to house us in their premises. Um, but I really think it's important for, for families to know that they don't have to follow a religion in order to be able to access the support. Um, so for me, no religion and faith has no basis in, in the work. I just really want to be alongside people and supporting people in their journey. Yeah, and that, that sums it up really well. The organisation was set up originally deliberately within the church community but not to force views on anyone you know in any way but just to give the spiritual support that was there um, and that was the theory behind it 20 years ago when the organisation was first set up within this community. Now sadly our time is coming to an end so let me um, ask a question I always like to ask and maybe one of, both of you wouldn't have a go on too much. If I gave you a magic wand and you could wave a magic wand, what would it be that would make your life easier or perhaps even more importantly, what would help the people that you're working with? Uh, if you had a magic wand, I would love it if we could normalise grieving. If we were able to support people and give them the room and the time to be able to talk about their grief and talk about their experiences in the wider community, while I don't think we would have no referrals, um, I do think having that support within our communities to be able to talk about their people, it would make people feel so much more included and supported in their grief. And as an organisation, it would be great if we could reach people throughout Scotland, mm. um, not, not just in you know two locations, um, which brings us back to the eternal answer of funding. <laughs> Well, look, thank you both very much. Um, thank you for your openness. Um, it's been very, very helpful, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to hear from Alison and Sam. Uh, doing a remarkable job helping young people come to terms with loss. We'll put a link to their website in the show notes, and you can go to it if you want to find out more. Thank you for listening to Out and About in the Lovians, and I look forward to catching up next time.